I've done races where I've had a Taylor Swift song stuck in my head for eight hours. Perfect. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And this week, we've got uh, a guest who I was very privileged to race against one time. And against is a very loose term because I think I've never seen anyone run so fast by me. But uh, we have Tamara Jewett joining us. And Tamara is a uh, an up-and-coming pro uh, triathlete. And she's going to be racing, actually, in, well, this weekend for when we're recording, but the uh, the 70.3 World Championships in St. George. Uh, but she also has a track background at U of T, so she's lightning fast. Um, and we just found out she's a lawyer as well, so we have to be extremely careful with what we say now. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Tamara. Thank you. It's definitely a privilege. We are, um, one of the other things that we want to talk to you about is, uh, is uh, something that came out from our email exchanges when we were inviting you to join us, uh, and that's that uh, you you tend to take a more subjective approach to training and racing. And that's something that I think as a, as a counterpoint to some of our more, more technical and uh, more, you know, uh, tool involving uh, training and, uh, and racing uh, discussions in the past. I think that's going to be a really nice counterpoint to, to that. And I think it's also, you know, in my own sort of, uh, in my own coaching and in my own uh, training and, and racing practice, I've, I'm starting to come around to uh, really looking for that balance between, uh, you know, really evidence-based and objective-driven approaches and more subjective ones. So that's something that I'm, I personally am very interested in, uh, in learning your, your take on. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because um, as an engineer, data is life for me. Uh, so I love numbers. I love gadgets. But taking a step back, I remember there were a few times when I was injured or sick and I would just go out for a run and I wouldn't take my watch with me. I wouldn't focus on uh, pace. I wouldn't finish on anything else. I'd focus on anything else. And those were some of the most fun training sessions that I've ever had. And it's it's really nice to be able to step back. So I think the, the first question I would have is um, how did you end up in this sphere? Like how did you end up using this method of, uh, well, not using any any or much data for your training. Yeah, I think that that's something that's always just been part of who I am, although I also have had sort of very specific periods in my athletic career where it's it's noticeably helped me that have reinforced that a bit, but um I've never been really really obsessed with data or numbers or stats in in sport and I uh, obviously all of those things are important so I kind of find other people I can rely on to worry about that part of my my training or you know I rely a lot on my coaches to to worry about the science behind putting our program together because I find uh if I focus in on that too much, it just feels like a little bit too much in my head that I'm worrying about when I'm trying to put my energy into executing athletic efforts well. But but I can also think of specific uh, periods of my athletics where it's it's actually been really important. And and the main one I can think of is um, 
at the end of high school, I actually almost quit track and field. I had a really rough year with sport in grade 11. Uh, it turned out I was quite anemic. It took me a long time to realize that. So for a long time, I thought I just wasn't mentally tough enough. And I would have sort of one interval in a workout that would feel great and then suddenly have no energy. And um, I sort of barely qualified for the Ontario high school championship that year and was just really frustrated. And I took a full month off of running, not sure I would come back to it that summer. Um, but then when I did come back to it, I trained very, very, very diligently, but I didn't time a single interval that I did basically until November. So I started training again in August and went completely based on feel and perceived effort from August to November. I remember, I actually remember the first workout where my coach made me time intervals again. I was really like angry with him for the workout because I just didn't want to deal with it. But, but my, <laughs> my running just really gained momentum and consistency. And I had a breakout, uh, season where I was second at, at the Ontario cross country championship, which was like 30 places better than I'd ever done at least. And I qualified for, for world junior cross country. Um, and, and so just for me, that process of of focusing on perceived effort and tuning into my body and not worrying about the metrics and, and kind of focusing just on me and my involvement in the sport really, really helped me gain momentum again. And, and I do know, um, some other athletes who, uh, have done that at different times, maybe not for quite that, that long, but I, I know Kate Van Buskirk's coach, uh, Dave Reed, who I, I worked with very briefly at, at one point, he recommended that as something he does in her program. If she's hitting rough patches where she's frustrated about not hitting times and workouts, he'll give her a few sort of perceived effort workouts as a bit of a reset and just to tune back in with her body and, um, I, I certainly find that can be quite effective. And then in, in triathlons, um, I I've started not wearing a smartwatch on the run. I used to a bit just to make sure I wasn't going out too fast at the start of the run. Cause I, I had a tendency when I started mm -hmm. to do like a really hard K <laughs> that, and, and that just makes the whole rest of the thing harder. It would be like way faster than I needed to do that first K. But, but now, um, I find in a triathlon on the run, uh, just partly because you're at the end of such a long endurance effort, partly because of the train on the, the course. If, if I do wear a watch, sometimes the case splits are just so up and down. It's a bit distracting. I'll get really discouraged if I hit one that's not great. Or um, So I find that just not seeing that and focusing instead on how my body is feeling and, and trying to maximize the effort uh, is, seems to go better for me than, than worrying about however the numbers look kind of up and down as I'm going along. So I think I heard a, collect, a collective gasp from our listeners when you said you don't uh, pay attention to the data, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very tech focused and, and, and live and die by the numbers. And that's how I do it myself. But I know that um, the psychology, like we've had a few discussions in the past, uh, you know, pushing through intervals through, uh, through swearing or music or things like that. Um, so there, there is a big psychological component to it. And I know that when I've been off training for a little bit, which I mean, this year has been tough for everyone. So I was off for a little bit and then came back and my numbers weren't where they, where they were supposed to be in my mind. And I had so much trouble dealing with that. And it was like, it was almost like I'd, uh, you know, waved a white flag before even starting the workout. And I would get inside my own head saying, I can't complete this. I can't do this. And it was because I was focused on the numbers. 
where I think if I'd taken the approach that you're using, where you're looking at just how did I feel, how did the workout go, and maybe maybe after the fact you take a, a very brief look at it, that gives you um, maybe a, a more holistic way of approaching it, something that's uh, it's a little bit healthier, not, not fixating on any one particular thing. Um, but I do remember hearing a saying at one point for runners, for marathoners, saying there, there are some people who run and need to think of every single step they take. And there are other people who run and can't think about running at all. Like they just put their mind elsewhere. And I think I'm the probably think about every step, think about all the data. And you're probably the opposite where you just let your mind do something more creative than just fixating on exactly every mechanical motion. So it's, it's very interesting for me. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually sort of purposely the like not trying to think of any running step because that really uh, it really overwhelms me. And and I actually early in my university running career, I did um, a psychological assessment that I I honestly forget most of it, but there were a few key pieces of information that I found useful, and and one of them relates to that um, where one of the things that it was trying to look at was what does your brain like to do under stress? It was some measure of that. And, Hmm. and for me, it was basically like, I was in like the 90 something percentile of like brain likes to be really analytical under stress. But what I find is, um, or or that actually uh, showed me something that was interfering with my racing that I need to like address. So, um, for, for what my brain likes to do, like writing an exam is great. So I never found school exams very, uh, like difficult from a stress perspective or like, so, cause my brain was basically in that situation doing exactly what it wanted to do. Um, as a track runner, I used to have a lot of problems with, um, like getting overstressed before a race or, or just kind of freezing up a bit because, uh, of like over race anxiety. And, and I found that that was actually a key where, um, you know, having your brain want to be very analytical during a school exam is perfect and you're doing exactly what it wants. But you, for me, at least I cannot think my way through a triathlon. I can't like think my way through a running race. Like my brain mm-hmm. just, um, my body freezes up if my brain is trying to analyze what I'm doing too much in that situation. And so I found that's something I actually have to sort of consciously tell my brain, like, no, you, you can't, you want to think through this really carefully and analyze every moment of this. I can see brain that that's what you're trying to do here, but it's not going to work. <laughs> and so I, I actually sort of consciously think that when I'm racing, like it, it's okay, brain, I can see what you're, you're trying to do, but this isn't how we're going to get through this. And, and I just have to distract <laughs> myself quite a bit. Uh, because I do find when I'm racing, if I focus in on, on any one thought too much or my thoughts bounce around too much, it just physically, the, the effort doesn't go as well as if I can slow my brain down or distract it a bit. So do you have a, do you have a go-to for, uh, for, you know, for your distraction or do you, is it, is it something that, that changes from race to race? Is it, is it, you know, kind of a self-talk thing? Uh, what's uh, what's in the toolbox for that? The the main one is song lyrics, like just trying to get a song stuck in my head <laughs> while I'm racing. <laughs> that's that's the biggest one. Can you control which song? Because I've done races where I've had a Taylor Swift song stuck in my head for <laughs> eight hours, and it is. Uh, I mean, nothing against, nothing against her, but uh, maybe not the the artist I would choose to listen to for eight hours on repeat. But uh, 
it's it, it's so funny how you just get caught in this this mental loop, but it's something to focus on. So maybe it's doing a good thing after all. Yeah, I find sometimes it's like like two lines of the song. I can try to control it a little bit, but often it just happens. And and if it, if I again like if, if I am switching songs too much in a race, that starts to worry me. It's like my my brain's doing <laughs> too much. So it's nice if I can just really get into one. I I like it when people come up with good music. So like when Hamilton came out, I think that really helped my my 2020 sort of modified racing <laughs> season. That was great music that, that was stuck your in my soundtrack? head the whole time. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I had uh, I was in uh, I was racing, well, racing in air quotes in um in Charlevoix uh, this past weekend doing a, an ultra trail race and I got a song stuck in my head and I swear it was the it was like two lines of a song and I have no idea what the song was. Like right now I couldn't tell you what that song was. I couldn't remember even when I was running, I couldn't remember who who sang it or what the name of the song was. It was very familiar and I knew those two lines very well, but I have no recollection of what it was, but it was almost a whole race. So it was, yeah, I mean, I've had similar experiences. So I'm going to make a mental note here that we need to follow up with you after your race this weekend and find out which song <laughs> you're listening to in your head. No, don't give her brain any more to do, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, past, the past the couple, it's been like, oh, I forget exactly what the name is, but it's like Philip Phillips song, like Raging Fire or something like that. It's it's like set like something about like setting your soul on fire. It's like a very like uplifting song. So that's been a good one. But but I, I'm never quite sure which one it is is going to stick for any given race. <laughs> I wonder if it works to to listen to some of this uplifting stuff because I mean uplifting music is has a very we had uh, Professor Kerry Georges on the show uh, I don't know a year and a half ago or a year ago and he spoke about the very you know he called it what did he call the effect he called it uh, small but consistent um, a positive you know performance enhancing effect of of positive music um, and if you can kind of maybe clog your brain with that kind of stuff you know kind of saturated pre-race you know i guess that's why people listen to music pre-race and then when you're uh when you're you know in the in the tough spots maybe that kind of it just automatically kicks in the automatic play button uh is activated so i'm gonna i'm gonna try that next time i race so there's um probably something most people are familiar with but flow state where your mind kind of gets into this groove and it sounds very much like you're the kind of person who's able to maybe not coerce your mind, but uh, control how you, you enter this flow state and, and end, end up just with a very, um, not relaxing race, but a very um, mentally less stressful race, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's how it feels. Okay. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, I think... <sighs> Like any really hard racing effort, I wouldn't describe it as relaxing. I do think that the idea of flow state resonates, but it's it's a bit something that I have to try to maintain while I'm racing. And, and a lot of that is just a lot of practice tuning into perceived effort in my body, maybe. So relaxing definitely doesn't sound like the right description to me, but, but maybe like, that was like, a bit of a liberty with word. <laughs> uh, yeah. But maybe it's sort of like trying to keep tuning into the idea of relaxing in my body, like through effort in my body. I'm, I'm not sure if that fully makes sense, but it's, it's like a keeping on trying to, to get back in touch with that idea in a, a way. But by the end of the run, it's the yeah, relaxing is not how it feels. <laughs> 
<laughs> feels hard. <laughs> and it should never, I guess, at the end. Yeah. At the end, it should always. Yeah. Be. Yeah. But there, but there is a thought process of of like you know obviously like tensing up through your whole body isn't going to let you run quickly, and so so as much as your body wants to tense up as it gets tired, thinking about staying looser and and so it's there's there's definitely like some connection with trying to to stay relaxed clearly you have uh, a whole ton of history and experience with running and uh you know uh, it it makes it makes sense that you're you can you can tune into your body much more readily in that sport and i'm curious how you approach uh cycling and swimming and obviously cycling is is a sport that really lends itself well to data analysis and uh do you think about cycling differently uh when you train and race or is it similar to running where you mostly execute based on feel it is a bit different i do need to rely on my bike computer more uh just Mm -hmm. because i have less of a body feel for that than I do for run. And so in a race, I I will be looking at sort of my average power as I go along and I have, uh, uh, you know, range that I generally want to try to stay in, although that's secondary to whatever racing dynamics are happening to some extent. I mean, as long as I'm not like going crazily over my target watts to try to stay with someone that I shouldn't or something like that. But, um, (laughs) but, but I'll, um, I'll definitely tune into numbers more on, on the bike when I'm racing and it's still a process for me. I think I'm getting better at, at perceived effort uh, on biking efforts and, and getting to know my body as a cyclist more, but, but that's definitely a gradual process and, and swim, very, uh, uh, I've gone through a huge process this year of, of completely changing my swim stroke and, and that's, um, coming together now, but it's, it's been an interesting kind of slow process, kind of having to like relearn the feel for swimming. And, uh, it was very frustrating when I started, just everything felt wrong in the water for a while while I was really trying to change how I moved in the water. Um, uh, although that was a situation where I had to tune out of times quite a bit because the times looked really frustrating for a long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, just trust. I worked with a coach. I'm working with a coach that I really trust there. Uh, uh, just sort of trusting his instructions more than worrying about numbers for, for quite a while. Uh, now we're reintroducing worrying about numbers a bit again. Yeah. And it looks like you've been able to make well, a good uh, a good go of things. Like you've been very successful with your performances, so obviously your approach is quite uh, uh, working quite well for you. It may not work for everyone. I think I would have a little bit more trouble, but it would be interesting. I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but it would be interesting to spend a week just not paying attention to numbers, just being more relaxed about my training. Because uh, I know I get super uptight about it and making sure the averages and the you know, the intervals are hit exactly, but that's just a little bit of the, uh, the engineering me coming out. Yeah. And I do think it definitely like with, with anything to do with sort of physiology and bodies and psychology, like different things do work for different people. So I think part of the process of, of being an athlete and developing as an athlete is, is learning about yourself and, and what works for you. Um, to me that that's been a really important part of my athletic journey for myself, but also that like sometimes numbers really do matter. And obviously there are a lot of training sessions where I am really aiming for certain times when I, I run and, and I do train with my, my smartwatch quite a bit. So it's, uh, sort of 
picking times when numbers aren't going to matter and times when they are. And, and sometimes that can be like a day of decision if, if your body's feeling horrible, but you just need to get through a workout and the numbers are not helping you get through it, then maybe that's a time not to worry about it. But mm-hmm. it's definitely a balance. So it's, it's not that the numbers are never important at all. <laughs> so we've talked quite a bit about psychology in this conversation so far. And one big question I have for you is um, your your racing style or your strengths. Um, it's not that you're a bad swimmer or cyclist by any means, but you're an exceptional runner. Um, so what goes on in your mind when you're, uh, you might have a few women out ahead of you getting into the run? Um, how do you approach that? How do you, uh, how do you reconcile the differences, like a certain lead or something like that, knowing that you're probably going to put in a better run split? Um, what goes through your mind when you enter the run like? Um, I certainly never take for granted that it's going to go well, like so far it, it has, and and that's wonderful. So I, I always feel encouraged that there's a good chance that it will go well and that it's motivating that I should be able to try to pick people off. But, um, in terms of approaching the whole race, like it's been very important to me to keep working on improving my swim and improving my bike and, and staying closer to the front end of the race in, in those disciplines is, uh, important and something that I'm, I'm working very hard to, to keep improving. But, um, going into the run, uh, just, you know, often like Timberman recently, I, I came into the run very close to the top of the field and that, that was a bit new to me in a, a pro race and, uh, you know, felt exciting for sure. Still not taking for granted that this would mean things would go really well, but it definitely set up an opportunity that it would. Sometimes it's, it's a bit of a strange uh, feeling where I, I think I can move up, but it feels a little discouraging to me where I'm coming off. So like in Boulder, I I ended up fifth, but I think I started the run in about 11th and was, was gradually picking people down to the last, like, I think I passed Chelsea Sodaro in the last kilometer or something like that. So I, I just, you know, I know that that can happen. So I just, even if it feels in some ways a little discouraging to be behind, really focus on needing to put in the work to, to keep trying to improve whatever the outcome is going to be. And, and, uh, I find it helps to focus on just one person at a time ahead of me. Um, as I go, Some, sometimes I like it in the second lap of a run when there are more age group athletes around. And even if I'm not, uh, directly racing them, just having people to focus on is, is really motivating and, and breaks up the time as, as I go. But, uh, I, especially my first two pro races that I did, I, I finished sort of 11 or 13 seconds behind the person in front of me. So I, I never take for granted that there isn't someone behind me who might be in a similar position. And, (laughs) and I really try to keep up the effort, you know, trying to to catch people ahead of me, but also conscious that I, I don't know who's behind me and what's happening in their race. And they could be way closer than I, I think. So, so that's always, all of those things are in my mind. Yeah, it's um, well, it's such a different standpoint than what I usually approach a run with, thinking like, how many people can I stay ahead of while I'm running? Because I usually am the person that is getting past. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a you know, everyone everyone's got a different dynamic in triathlon, right? Like, it's I I kind of feel for uh, for the strong swimmers who are maybe not not as strong on the bike or not as strong on on the run, because uh, I think that's that's that that must be 
I imagine, and I don't want to project, but I imagine that's 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 really tough, right? Like you you know you come out in the water in a good spot, and then and then you're just like, f- you know, fighting a losing battle for the rest of the race. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it it must be motivating to be able to run folks down at the end. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I agree that it it does seem like it would be hard to be sort of in the spotlight at the end of the swim and then and then trying to hang on although if, yeah. if you're then able to improve your your bike and your run quite a bit that could be a, you know it's nice to also get into a really good position so early on now have you been able to attract sponsors based specifically on your run has that been kind of a, a business side of things the approach you've taken uh not not yet that's something that i am slowly starting to put together. I, um, uh, I guess my first year as a pro in 2019, I was coming off of 10 months in a, an articling job for, for law. And so uh, during that time, it, it was a very intense focus on balancing that, that job and training and, and, uh, and also wanting to put together results before worrying about, about sponsorship. And then 2020 was a bit of a strange year where uh, no one knew what was going to mm-hmm. happen. And, um, you know, s- sponsors were understandably very focused on supporting athletes that they were already supporting. Um, and then at the end of that, I had another full-time work stretch. So, um, right now my sponsors are, um, mostly some companies run by, by people that I know personally and, and, uh, it's sort of slowly turning my mind to trying to expand the support there. Um, I, I think unfortunately the, the most, like the most expensive part of triathlon is cycling. And so having good bike sponsors is really important to making it financially viable. So, mm-hmm. so in some ways I'm not sure how valuable being <laughs> a fast runner on its own is other than, um, you know, to the extent that I can improve my overall race results, but, you know, like right now, uh, particularly great sponsor that I have for the bike is, uh, Nick Van Buren, who's developing, uh, she's developing a new type of, uh, disc wheel that, that has, um, sort Ooh, of, uh, yes. like she's, she's very much on our radar right now yeah, and, and her business partner. We're, we're trying to coerce them to come on the show with, uh, with, with, the, with the, the product. Yeah, they're awesome. So I have her, her main, uh, wheels, the, the sore wheels, you need like a disc break to, um, to use those. And I don't have disc breaks and it's very hard to try to track down a new frame right now, uh, with supply disruptions and whatnot yes. in the cycling industry. But, but so she just made me in her basement, like a, a version of it that works with my, uh, my braking <laughs> system. Uh, she's very sort of like DIY and will just sort of hack things together for me if I need them, which is kind of cool and, uh, <laughs> has been helping me with my bike setup awesome. quite a bit. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, like the, the last year for sponsorship, companies have just been focused on keeping their doors open. Um, and that's, I mean, the pandemic has disrupted everything across the board. So the fact that you're able to rely on a pretty solid full-time job, uh, you know, being a lawyer is, uh, I think, something a lot of people aspire to. So the fact that you have this option to, to fall back on it probably takes a lot of the pressure off of the um, the sponsorship side of things. Yeah, it definitely, it is also a job to maintain those, those relationships. And I can imagine that that is 
is very tough and, and it changes your relationship. I, I seem to race results a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard though, even with the part-time job, like the, the travel, especially this year for triathlon is very expensive and it's hard to, to keep it going. I have, um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to also have a lot of family support in this and I, I couldn't do it in the way that I have this year, especially for stretches without that. My parents are supporting me a little bit with the, the travel, um, which has been tough and expensive and there aren't races in Canada right now. So, um, yeah, it's an expensive sport, especially coming from, from, from track and field. Uh, that was a a big change. (laughs) Track is, you know, you need a pair of running shoes and you're good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. So uh, maybe, uh, Tamara, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and, uh, and, and talk about diet. And this is something that I, uh, I'm certainly not a subject matter expert on and, uh, just really keen to hear what your, what your experience was. Uh, you mentioned in the, um, the introduction, I'm not sure if that'll make it into the podcast, depending on how we, how we slice it, that, uh, you were, you were vegetarian. Now you're a pescatarian. Um, just walk, do you mind just walking us through that, that process and why you decided to add fish to your, to your plate (laughs) as it were? Yeah. So I, no one else in my family is vegetarian, but I became vegetarian when I was about six years old and it was (laughs) very much. That's that's, that's early on. Okay. Yeah. I (laughs) I have a six year old, so I'm not, and that, that's, that kind of hits home. If he just tells me, he's like, oh, I'm not going to start. I'm not eating this anymore, dad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll do our best to respect that, I suppose. Yeah, I think my my parents didn't expect it to stick and it did, but <laughs> I I basically had a day where I was like at a farm playing with like lambs and farm animals all day no. and then by an unfortunate coincidence like dinner that night was lamb. <laughs> I I decided then and there that I was vegetarian and that was that. <laughs> so um yeah. But, but it was hard at the time that I became vegetarian, so, which would have been in the early 90s or mid nineties, like it just was not very common for people to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And, and so for, and, and I did not, obviously I was six, I didn't know a huge amount about nutrition and my parents didn't know about vegetarian nutrition. And, and, um, so, so there was probably a long stretch where I really wasn't getting enough protein. Like my meal at a restaurant and even at home often would be sort of like whatever the sides were to a meat dish. So a lot of like vegetables, but, Mm -hmm. um, and I also for a long time, didn't like eggs. So eggs now are a really important source of protein for me. But, uh, until, uh, until partway through university, I just wouldn't eat them. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and that was, that was mostly fine, but it, um, uh, as a runner, the, so, so other things came into this too. So as a runner, um, uh, once I started, I was fine through high school, starting university, I, I ran into a lot of chronic injury problems in running. Okay. And I think that part of that was not enough protein because of the, um, way that I was managing my vegetarian diet. Another part of it was that I, I did for a period have uh, like a full blown eating disorder, which, um, I, again, I, I think, and I hope that there's more information in, in the running community and universities now to deal with that at the, at the time there, um, uh, wasn't uh, the right kind of attention on it, but I, it, so I was just flat out under fueling and, and that's part of, you know, I struggled with anemia. I had quite a few mineral deficiencies and, um, in trying to, 
address that. Like it just became very clear between the injuries and energy problems that um, I needed to change the way that I was eating to be able to run at a high level and running at a high level was very, very important to me. Um, So I started working with sports nutritionists and um, that uh, led me to like understand better, like minerals I was deficient in, understand better that I needed more protein in my diet. Um, so, so I would say the main things that were missing were just like flat out needing more energy, um, needing more protein in my diet, needing more healthy fats in my diet and, and particularly iron and vitamin B12 I was quite deficient in. And, um, so, uh, partway through that, I added fish, uh, as just an easier way to get protein, especially when I was traveling or in places where it was harder to find vegetarian proteins. Um, I, I added eggs back partly. I, I was doing a, um, a, an exchange program to Beijing and the family I was living with was really stressed about what to feed me because I was vegetarian and they weren't used to that. And so they, they yeah. latched onto eggs as something that, that was good to feed me and I didn't want to be difficult. So, uh, they did me a big favor actually by, by getting me over my dislike of eggs. And, and that's a huge source of protein for me now. Um, so I added back those things. I, I rely on protein powder quite a bit. Um, and I am always on an iron supplement now. I've, I've never had success getting enough iron from a vegetarian diet without an iron supplement and, and taking that very carefully, like away from other food. Cause a lot of, um, uh, a lot of other foods can interfere with iron absorption. So I take it with vitamin C at night, sort right. of uh, quite a while after dinner, but, um, uh, but yeah, so, so dealing with all of that, I was able to get to a much healthier place for, um, my body, the sort of psychological aspect of it was something that kind of took lo- longer and, uh, it was sort of like a separate journey, but, but, uh, definitely even just the process of making sure that I was feeling properly and feeling how my body felt when, when I, was I just had so much more energy and things went so much more smoothly in my my training mm-hmm. um and uh the, the injury history has been more complicated than just being about the nutrition aspect but uh you know we've been able to gradually unravel the many layers of, of what was going wrong there as well um so so becoming pescatarian was was partly just a concession to uh feeling like I I needed a big change to get things on a better track and and that that was an easy I think it's possible to have a, a healthy vegetarian diet without being pescatarian but uh, it made it easier for me particularly with travel and particularly while I was in university right well yeah well thanks uh, thank you for telling us that story and I think it's um you know obviously I'm a you know a 40 year old white guy here who was never in in high level athletics so it's it's uh you know I I haven't I don't have maybe direct experience with it but from at least the voices that I listen to on on a day to day, it does sound like there's a lot more attention being paid, especially to young women in sport and the and the way that uh, that especially endurance sport like running, um, 
you know, historically there's been quite a bit of, uh, of attention paid to like body weight and, and there have been, you know, there are a lot of women that are talking about the, the, the problems they had in, in high level athletics with, uh, you know, with body image and eating disorders. And, uh, I think the more, you know, kind of the more people like yourself talk about it, the, the less of a stigma that becomes. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm grateful for you, for you sharing the story. Um, and, uh, it, it certainly does make sense. Like there's, uh, with, with the vegetarian diet, with the folks that I work with that are vegetarians, they do, it, it takes, it's a hundred percent doable. As you say, I think it's, it's very, very possible to be a vegetarian or even a vegan and, and be very successful in our sport, but it takes a lot more work, right? It's, it's, it's a lot harder. So it just depends on, uh, again, my, my opinion, it just depends on how much effort are you willing to put into your, your eating, uh, on top of your training, on top of your work, on top of sponsor management, on top of everything else. So it's, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that, you know, you, you know, some, some of those, some of those have to, the sacrifices have to be made in, in, in some of those areas. Yeah. And I, I think in my case, you know, the problems I ran into were very fixable problems. It just, it took a desire to fix them and, and also finding the right people to, um, to work with. And, and of course with the vegetarian piece that becomes easier once you, you have sort of your list of things that you need to fit in or things that you need to do. So I find like, I don't really work much with nutritionists anymore, but going through Mm -hmm. a period of doing that, I sort of now have my like set of things that I work in each day as like enough protein in my meals, or I have a pretty set breakfast that I I have each day. And, And those are sort of things that I, I worked with a professional to develop and get more guidance about, but, but then it becomes pretty routine and I, I have a good feel of how to make it work in my day. And, and similar to some of the discussion about um, sort of perceived effort and just using intuition rather than numbers in, in training, I, I do that with food now too. I feel like there were periods where I was measuring what I ate to just get a sense of a big change I needed to make in it. But, but now I feel like my... Um, I'm pretty in tune with my body. I feel like it's pretty good now that I listen to it. It, it tells me mm-hmm. what it needs pretty clearly and, and whether that's sort of like what I need to eat to recover from a, a training session or, or even during a race. I feel like I definitely have like a nutrition plan during a race, but I can also tell usually if I need to modify it a bit or if my, my body, I think I, you know, I took bonking once on the bike to be like, okay, here's what leads up to that. And I know how that feels. So, <laughs> so here's what I need to do to, yeah. to avoid it. Um, uh, so, so I found that that's been a very positive experience of, uh, just learning how to listen to my body better and that'll kind of falling into to place quite well. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that 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 also makes a ton of sense. I think, um, and this is something we have covered on the podcast in the past quite a bit is uh, is that our bodies like consistency and like normalcy, and so long as that you know your normal is is you know ideally a healthy normal, whether that's from you know training or eating or, or sleep, um, if you can get yourself to a place where you you train yourself that that this is normal and it's good and the perfect example was when you were speaking about um changing your swim stroke right so when you first started changing it it was not normal and it felt terrible and you know your times weren't amazing but then when when you kind of ingrained it and that became normal maybe then then now it feels i'm sure if you went back to your old stroke that would not feel very good um so yeah so once once you can kind of uh, I, i feel like once you can kind of 
teach your body what normal is, what a good normal is, then then there is a lot of kind of uh, momentum and kind of, and, and self regulation that you can um, you can rely on to to keep that normal going. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably right. And you're. Um, yeah, I find for me, like good habits with food doesn't mean it has to be like perfect all all the time. Mm -hmm. Or like, I think like treats are an important part of that, but definitely if you're, (laughs) if you're like used to, yeah, I think once your body gets used to, to eating in a certain way and and especially just feeling energy levels being good around training it, it from in my, yeah, in my case, it tells me like kind of, um, I guess the, I don't know, the, the gauge of where it wants to be, it tends to be in a good place. And, and, uh, it's, it's not a chore to, to sort out the nutrition around that. It just feels quite natural. That's awesome. No, that's really good to hear. So, um, obviously St. George is very, very near the horizon. Um, what's, uh, what else is on your plate for, for this season and next, what are your kind of short-term and long-term goals? Where would you like to go? Um, very short term, the weekend after St. George, I'm planning to race, uh, the Augusta 70.3. Uh, so it's a quick turnaround, but convenient because I'm in the States already. And, uh, I think they've, they've added a couple more races to the calendar for a while. There wasn't very much after that. So I thought it would be good to fit in, but, um, in terms of this season, that's a bit where my planning ends. Blue Arts has been a big focus and and we're going to sort of see um, where my body is at after Augusta and, and plan the next few months based on that. I, I think I'll likely try to fit something in in December, but but October and November might, might be a bit of downtime. I, I have a... Um, a knee injury I've been struggling with a bit and it's improving a lot. So partly uh, what we'll do will depend on how it holds up to sort of two back-to-back races just, just now. And it's looking more and more, more hopeful, but we might need a little bit of extra rest for it. So, so that's a factor. And then next, next year, um, I, I was really pleased uh, because I won Timberman. I, I secured a spot very early for 2022 Worlds. So so that'll be another big focus next year. And, and part of the season will be planned around that. Um, but it's everything's still a little uncertain with the pandemic. It's not quite clear <laughs> 100% what, what next year will look like. So we'll, we'll sit down and, and plan that right. in a bit. Not quite yet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, uh, you know, I ask these questions of, of what are you thinking of doing next year quite a bit. Um, and it's kind of a, it's uh, in many ways, an impossible question to answer <laughs> given, given everything that's going on. But um, listen, thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, and, uh, and joining us today and, uh, and kind of putting a, a little bit of a different light on to training and racing than the kind of focus that we, we typically, we typically take and uh, you know, best of luck in uh, St. George this weekend. Uh, Andrew mentioned, Andrew uh, wrote it in as he was leaving, but uh, we'll be, we'll definitely be following you along and wishing you the best in that race. Thank you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's a beautiful course. It looks like a pretty tough course, but uh, yeah, the, the scenery is quite stunning here and uh, it's exciting. That's awesome. Uh, and if uh, folks want to follow along, obviously, you know, they can follow you in the race easily enough. But um, do you do you want us to plug any uh, websites, social uh, platforms where, where folks can keep up with you? Instagram is usually where I'm most active. So my, okay. my Instagram is just at Tamara Jewett. And uh, that's that's the easiest way to, to sort of keep track of my updates on what I'm doing. Sounds good. And uh, listeners, of course, will we'll post that in the show notes. 
Uh, so with that, uh, we'll say goodbye. And uh, as always, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, spending a little bit of time with us and uh, you know, listening to some content that's a little bit different than what we normally talk about on Endurance Innovation. And uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do give us a rating and a review on iTunes and uh, also consider supporting us on Patreon. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash Endurance Innovation. Thanks, everyone.